0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Why exactly are so many federal information technology acquisition programs late or over budget and not always delivering hoped for results? It might be one of the most studied topics in public management. Now a supply chain and operations researcher at the University of Minnesota may have an answer. Dwight Roy joins me now. Mr. Roy, good to have you on.
0: Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. It's my pleasure.
1: And you've published a paper that's kind of academic sounding. So we're going to try to do this in plain English. But what precisely were you trying to discover in your research here?
0: Thank you for that question, Tom. So in this research, my co-authors and I take a closer look at the U.S. federal government's spending on technology programs, Like you mentioned earlier, these programs are enterprise-wise technology initiatives that consist of interrelated application development and maintenance projects. And they help the federal government to improve operations and deliver essential services to the public. So an example of a federal technology program is the My USCIS platform, which enables users, including international students like me, to access information about immigration services. It's worthwhile to note that in the past 10 years, the U.S. federal government has been spending close to $70 billion annually in executing these technology programs. And the execution of these programs is monitored against a baseline, which is an aggregate plan representing the program's planned budget, schedule, and scope. And recent reports have found that federal technology programs are re-baselined multiple times, resulting in significant additional expenditure of taxpayer dollars. For example, a Government Accountability Office report finds that baseline changes are quite common across federal technology programs, with more than 50% of such programs being re at least once, and more than 25% being re-baselined twice or more.
1: Sure, so you were trying to find out what causes this rebaselining.
0: Exactly. In this study, what we are trying to do is to identify the drivers of baseline changes in federal technology programs.
1: All right. And how did you go about the research? What did you look at to try to ascertain this?
0: So in terms of the study methodology, to conduct the study, what we did was we collected detailed execution-level data on 240 federal technology programs across 24 agencies.
1: 240.
0: 240 technology programs, which in turn consisted of around 800 projects. And these projects in turn consisted of around 4000 work units. And because these programs were executed by 24 federal agencies, they were quite representative of the kind of work which the federal government is Doing. And just uh, for the information of the audience, this data is actually publicly available on the federal IT dashboard, which sure. is a publicly mm-hmm. accessible website that helps federal agencies and commoners like me to view details about these technology programs and track their progress over time.
1: And by the way, did you have any particular trouble in dealing with the USCIS platforms as a foreign student?
0: Uh, No, I think my experience so far has been wonderful. So I think the federal government is doing a great job when it comes to, uh, you know, helping international students like us to, you know, get into the universities and a very seamless process.
1: So you took all this data on 4000 work units. So that could be a software development subset of work or the acquisition of machinery, that type of thing
0: and even maintenance of a legacy system. So it could be application development or a maintenance project.
1: And how did you analyze all of this data?
0: So like I said earlier, using this data sample of 240 programs, uh, we tested four hypotheses on the interrelationships between program scope, granularity, competency, execution methodology, and how do they affect the baseline changes in the program? And what we did was we estimated a regression model that accounts for agency level characteristics and also a number of program-specific characteristics, such as the duration of the program, the budget of the program, when was the program started, and so on.
1: All right. Uh, By the way, we're speaking with Dwight Roy. He's a supply chain and operations researcher at the University of Minnesota. And what did you find? What causes agencies to have to re-baseline, which is just another way of saying we had no idea how long it would take or what it would cost. Here's the latest estimate.
0: So if I were to summarize the three key findings from the study. So first, baseline changes in programs of greater scope, that is programs that have more projects they can be reduced if federal agencies and contractor firms they invest greater efforts in componentizing a program into smaller work units and in identifying managers with high levels of technical and practical knowledge in program management a competency which is critical for managing multiple interrelated projects second Our study highlights the role of number of baseline changes as a valuable in-process metric for program managers and federal agencies to monitor program execution. And finally, what we find is federal technology programs using the agile methodology experienced more baseline changes. In programs with agile methodologies, scope creep can be higher as these programs can often lack sufficient upfront effort in developing the initial baseline and depend too much on making adaptations during execution. However, this upfront effort is very critical for better managing adaptations and for avoiding the time-consuming approval process needed for revising a baseline.
1: Because everybody's talking about their adoption of Agile methodology, but it sounds like you're saying that, fine, go ahead and use Agile, but keep the scope limited and just do it in an Agile way rather than letting Agile branch off into more and more functionality that you might discover along the way.
0: Exactly. I think you summarized it very well there. The only point that we are trying to make is, yes, when you're using Agile, make adaptations when the program is executed, but Keep these adaptations within a certain limit and spend some upfront effort in planning what exactly are you going to do so as to avoid making large adaptations during program execution.
1: Got it. So you've kind of found a statistical basis for some eternal truths that people sensed but maybe never really could prove
0: rigorous econometric evidence. That's what we provide in this study.
1: All right. So at the conclusion of your studies here in the United States, do you want to work as a government IT person or maybe work for the government accountability office and get after some of these things before they get out of hand?
0: So like I mentioned earlier, I'm an international student, but I'll be joining the Darden School of Business as an assistant professor this fall. All
1: right. So you'll be nearby in Virginia. That's a step closer to the uh, power center, huh?
0: Exactly. That's one of the reasons why I chose to be at Darden, because I had multiple offers from across the world.
1: All right. Who knows what might come in after people hear this? Dwight Roy is a supply chain and operations researcher at the moment at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. This was a pleasure.
1: We'll post this interview along with a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast Oneer wherever you get your shows.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's
2: environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
3: You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me, uh, I as a leader, uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the e- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, chain and be empathetic. And be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions, uh, on those, on others, uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year, uh, to adapt. Uh, but I'm happy to say that, uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
2: Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today?
3: You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school being bussed across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black literally and there was another candidate who ran as vice president white and the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly that was a lesson for me in leadership and and the lesson there was you know perseverance uh, have the tenacity uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers and and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president, uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally, And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
3: Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try PluralSight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com/vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you've entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person,